In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 33 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot, and let's start by taking a look in the email vault. Bob's been in touch to say how he's used the Kinnear module that I reviewed last episode. He took the premise from Amberzone 12, A Dagger of Her Fate, and swapped in the Kinnear ship to create a dungeon in space. What an awesome combination. Nice idea, Bob. He's also mentioned mystery adventures and the lack of detective skills. So I'm planning to do a segment on that in an upcoming episode. So thanks for the idea, Bob. And Todd has pinged me too to ask about my thoughts on the Cepheus engine system. Stay tuned, Todd. It's coming right up. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy segment, where I tell you about a planet in my Foranus subsector. A map and planetary UPPs are available on the podcast website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Carberoni is a unremarkable planet at first glance. Smallish, dry as a bone, and with a trace atmosphere that is high in sulphur and utterly unbreathable. Although it does not present an appealing prospect to potential settlers, it does attract more than its fair share of scientists and intellectuals. The mineral makeup of the planet is exceptional, with the surface being littered with vast caves that expose large deposits of rare natural alloys. One of these alloys is Canthian, which is renowned for its ability to block much of the radio spectrum. This and the other alloys were created during a persistent commentary bombardment at some point in its past. These unusual minerals originally attracted a few speculators who thought to make money on transporting the minerals to nearby systems. Unfortunately for them, the demand for the minerals in those systems quickly dried up and carriage to further systems was uneconomic. Thus, when the megacore, Strand, moved in to claim the system, there was no one to object. Strand's business is built on science, and they have a few smaller spin-off companies that indulge in manufacturing and actual production. But none of these exist in the Carberani system. The work that takes place here is based on research and development. All of the population centres are built around supporting massive laboratories, that are researching and developing new substances based on the available alloys found on Caperoni. Each laboratory has a complete support structure centred on it. Water, air, hydroponic food supplies, equipment manufacture, etc. are all produced by employees of Strand for internal consumption. Because the planet is commercially owned, everyone on the planet is an employee of Strand. The children of employees are covered by the employment contracts. The children may only remain on the planet until they reach the age of 18. After that, if they're not taken on as an employee, they're given a ticket to one of the pre-selected lists of other worlds and effectively set adrift. However, there are few children who end up in that position. The company ensures these children are safely brought up by their families. The company pays for their food, clothing, housing and a very good education with a heavy scientific tilt. The majority of these children opt to take up employment with the company, 
either on Cabaroni or one of their other facilities across the sector. There have been a number of reports in the press claiming that Strand is using its employees and their children as slaves, even going so far as to brainwash the children into becoming lifelong volunteer slaves. Of course, the company has denied all such accusations. Interviews with employees usually report no such thing, and the accusations have normally come from ex-employees who might be thought to have a reason to slander their former employers. Although it's true that the employees who live on company-owned planets are not paid a wage in credits, they do receive company tokens that can be used to requisition for their needs on the planet. There is also an exchange rate between tokens and credits for employees who wish to leave employment, and although not particularly favourable, most ex-employees leave with a sizeable amount. Visitors to the system are required to use designated landing facilities and apply for a local short-term visa. This is primarily intended for visiting employee relatives and occasional traders. Most people who visit the planet do not leave the starport at all, as all facilities on the planet are employee-restricted, and those that are not restricted only accept company tokens rather than credits. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. The PCs are cruising through space, perhaps moving out to a jump point or between planets in a single system, when the ship they're in collides with an asteroid. This is extremely unusual, as the ship's systems would normally warn them of a possible collision. Any systems check will report everything working as it should. The reason the asteroid was not seen by the collision system is that the material that it's made of is impervious to the usual detection systems. That makes it very interesting and potentially very valuable to the military and military equipment suppliers. Trace elements on the asteroid will lead any lab to report that it likely came out of the third asteroid belt in the system. The belt was considered mined out and abandoned for decades. If the PCs can keep the lid on their discovery, they'll be able to investigate the belt, discover that it's actually quite rich in this new undiscovered mineral. The mining equipment used by companies previously was abandoned and left drifting out in the belts. Perhaps the PCs can bring it back online and start a mining operation. They will need to keep this quiet, as the equipment out there is still notionally at least owned by the corporations that built it, and one or two of them might still have mineral rights to the belt. Setting up a mining operation will lead the PCs into all kinds of shenanigans, such as trying to raise funds from people who don't ask too many questions, through to buying up mining equipment and or spares and shipping them out to the belt unseen. If the PCs do start up mining, you'll have the opportunity to have the local navy wander by to investigate, and if they do, then the secret will be blown. And assuming that the PCs manage to gather a few tonnes of the new material, they then have to sell it. A product capable of masking a starship effectively gives it an invisibility cloak, and it's going to be a hot material. Militaries across the galaxy are going to demand the product. It will become the new hot thing. It's likely to hit the press, become a sensation, and bring down all kinds of political pressure. Will the PCs be able to keep their source secret? Will they be able to meet the demand? It's entirely possible that such a product could start a war. One side will not want the other to get the new ultimate weapon, and a cold war could turn hot overnight.
Things could go south financially very quickly. The new mineral material might become worthless overnight if a scientist discovers a way to tweak scanners to see through the new shielding. Perhaps the PCs could get a whiff of information about this clever scientist's work that they'll have to protect their own financial empire and perhaps kidnap somebody? If the mining operation suddenly becomes worthless due to a scanner tweak, then if the PCs have creditors and no way to pay them back, you might have to have them go on the run to avoid angry men with guns. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is Rules Talk, where I look at some aspect of the classic traveller rules or canon. Today I thought I'd look into High Passage, so let's start in the 1977 version where it's described as Includes first-class accommodations and excellent cuisine. Up to one tonne of baggage is allowed. High passages cost 10,000 credits if purchased. Membership of the Travellers Aid Society provides members with one high passage every two months. I had thought at first that with a cost of 10,000 credits, high passage is going to be for the very well-off and there would be a lot of snobbery associated with it. However, when you look at the mustering out benefits, both the Navy and the Marines give away TAS membership, which means half of the high passengers are going to be grunts and tars, so there's unlikely to be much snobbery. A high passage received as benefit of TAS membership can be sold for around 9,000 credits. That turns out to be quite a good living, a pension if you will. Book 2 Starships adds a little more info about the high passage. Passengers have the services of the ship's steward, entertainment, whatever that means, and complete attention to their comfort. Now nipping forward to Book 7 Merchant Prince, we see that they too can get both membership of TAS when mustering out, and also high passages. And that's all I could find in the core rule books. So what have we got to work with? Quite a lot, actually. A high passenger is going to be a demanding individual. That can be a real pain for the captain and crew of a small vessel. They want nice food, so the galley is going to have to be well-staffed. They demand entertainment too, and sticking them in their room with a TV for a week just won't wash it with these kinds of people. You need to provide that entertainment. Performing plays, perhaps. Live singing, game nights, dance lessons. Any number of entertainments will need to be provided. A jump lasts a week, and that's a lot of entertainment to provide. Any captain failing to provide that is going to get into some bad reviews, and perhaps after that getting new passengers is going to be tricky. There are other considerations too. What other needs will passengers put onto a captain? Medical facilities are a concern. A serious accident or medical emergency must be catered with. Do they have special dietary needs? What if a passenger goes mad? What if one of them murders another? What about dealing with the other races? If you have a Varg on board and another passenger gets on with a pet poodle, what problems will that cause? All in all, I think passengers are going to give you, the referee, a lot of fun. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I take a look at a creature from somewhere in the Imperium. The spear dog is a common animal on its homeworld. 
It is not limited to a single environment and is well adapted to many of the biomes there. Its omnivore diet and small size allow it to fit into many biological niches. It's a fur-covered quadruped with a vaguely dog-like profile. An adult weighs in at about 20 pounds. The colour of their fur varies according to the terrain in which it finds itself. As the fur is in a constant state of molting, it quickly picks up the colour of the surroundings within a period of 5 to 15 days. Thus the spear dog is able to adapt its camouflage to the changing seasons as well as to the terrain. It is a hunter as well as a scavenger, and this opportunistic nature often brings it into conflict with farmers. Small stock animals will be prey for the dog, and succulent fruit or vegetables will likewise be fodder for it. As they rarely travel alone, it can be devastating to crops and herds when they cross paths with farmland. Fortunately for farmers, the spear dog does not climb well and cannot jump higher than an inch or two. Thus a farm is well protected against spear dogs if surrounded by a smooth-sided wall a couple of feet high. Although special care must be taken when building a protective wall to sink the foundations a couple of feet into the soil too, as the dog can burrow quite effectively and will go under a wall that sits on the surface. The spear dog gets its name from the bony spear with which it hunts. Running along the inside length of the dog, just beneath its spine, is a single bone aptly named a spear. When close to a prey animal, the dog rapidly ejects the bone spear forwards out of its mouth and literally spears the target. This spear is then drawn back into the body of the dog. This attack method causes a lot of tissue damage to the dog itself, but this rapidly heals. A dog will not use its spear more than once per day except when defending itself. Nasty experiments have shown that the dog, if persistently harried, is capable of killing itself by repeatedly using its spear. It's this spear, carried internally, that limits the animal's mobility. The rigid bone does not allow it to bend or twist more than a couple of degrees. Spear dogs are not naturally fearful of humans, and a pack will attack a prone man. There have been deaths of individuals caught unawares while sleeping. Homes and other habitations are normally surrounded by what the locals call dog walls. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? The spacer in the corner booth. Oh, don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, I see. This is the People of Interest segment, where I tell you about someone from the Imperium that has a bit of a reputation. Carlo Hastana spent most of his professional career working as a theoretical scientist and paper writer for one of the major corporations in his home system. He fell into the trade because of a combination of interests in the physical scientists and having a creative mind. For 20 years he worked at this trade of turning his ideas into scientific papers for a wage. But when he reached his middle years, he suffered a midlife crisis of sorts and realised that he was making the owners of the company rich with his ideas, but himself was only earning a modest wage. He longed for more. He wanted to build something. He left his employer, Sands Industrial, and used his life savings to pay for a year's rent on his home up front. Unfortunately, his employment contract with Sands Corporation meant he was unable to work that first year after termination 
in a creative or scientific industry. However, it didn't prohibit him from working on his ideas as long as he didn't sell them, and that's what he did. For the first half of the year, he worked on producing theoretical papers, but kept them in his bottom drawer, just waiting for the day when the contractual restrictions would be lifted. It was at this halfway point when he struck upon the idea of the void magneto delivery system, an idea that caught his imagination, an idea that he felt so strongly that he stopped working on anything else. He fleshed out the concept from a simply scientific paper and researched financial viability, etc., convinced that this was an idea that could become revolutionary and change the way space commerce would work. In short, his idea was for a space-based, magneto-driven goods delivery service. He saw the time and cost it took for goods to be delivered from one planet to another in the same system. Sometimes it could take weeks aboard a cargo ship, or even months for cargo pods fired off into the void on ballistic trajectories. His idea was to line the space between two locations with relay stations that could capture a pod and use magnets to push a pod of goods onto the next relay station. His revolutionary concept here was that the pods would carry fuel and material for the relay stations themselves as well as the goods, and customers could get discounts on the pods by effectively paying for a quantity of fuel. Faster deliveries would require more fuel to be carried, and a premium would be charged for this extra speed. A complex computer algorithm of his design would control the flow of pods and ensure that the relay stations remained fueled and in place. When his year of exile was up, he started shopping the plans for his Magneto Pod Delivery Service, MPDS, around the major in-system cargo haulers. After three months, he found a buyer, and within 24 months, the first relays of his design were shunting food and goods out to the furthest asteroid belt and bringing ores back. Another six months, and more of them were hauling goods between the colonies of his home system. Unfortunately for Carlo, the corporation that purchased his design offered him a payment based on profits, but have consistently made no profits or even small losses. He's involved in a legal dispute with them as he claims they're cooking the books and that the company is making huge savings using his design, but deliberately moving money so as to avoid making the huge payment they should owe to him. He currently has a large legal team, who are working for a percentage of his final settlement, and the pundits are saying that he has a good chance of winning. Ah, damn piece of junk! Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no, no, don't you dare say it was me. Today's review is of the Cepheus engine. What's that, you say? Well, the cover says, a classic-era science fiction 2D6-based open gaming system. And inside it says, this product is derived from the Traveller System reference document and other open gaming content made available by the Open Gaming Licence and does not contain closed content from products published by either Mongoose Publishing or Far Future Enterprises. In short, this system is first edition Mongoose Traveller with the serial numbers filed off. It's been tweaked in places to change the rules slightly from the Mongoose system, and inside you'll find some of the familiar Traveller tropes which have just changed name, but it is all here. Indeed, what I particularly like about it is that it is all here. All the careers, all the rules, character gen, space combat, vehicle rules, world generation, encounters, 
or at least everything I would need to run a game of Traveller. This PDF is 208 pages of single-column layout. It's clean-looking, reads very well. The contents pages are also linked to the actual content, which is always a boon, especially when you need to look something up in a PDF. There's no art in the book, which matches the true nature of classic Traveller, I suppose, but it has a nice explosive colourful cover. So as a fan of classic Traveller, I feel about this system the same as I did about the first edition of Mongoose Traveller, that it is a worthy successor to the classic system, with the same caveat that PCs end up with too many skills. I've never got over the fact of having too many skills because I played a character with just one skill for so long. The Cepheus system is available from DriveThruRPG as a download, and it's currently pay-what-you-want, and definitely worth a look. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game. I'd like to remind you all about my Patreon account. I narrate audiobooks in my spare time, and I'm running a patron to support that work. When you become my patron, you'll get access to the audiobooks I record as MP3 files, getting each chapter as I record it. I'm currently recording a number of audiobooks, with the latest being the classic The First Men in the Moon. As I finish each chapter, I drop it into an online folder for patrons to download. Please check out my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash felbrick, and that's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. Once again, and as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items, or even short stories, send them in to BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Its home on the web is at BehindTheClaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host... Felbrick Napoleon Harriet. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>